0: following content is derived from the preaching ministry of Ashland Avenue Baptist Church in Oldham County, Kentucky, and is reproduced here for the benefit of its members. We exist to treasure and spread a passion for the supremacy of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples, and we pray that God's grace among us would spread beyond us to the benefit of anyone who happens to listen. For more information about our church, go to ashlandoc.org. Thanks for listening. Please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 10. We're going to be looking at the whole of Acts, chapter 10, but I am going to read verses 44 through 48. I invite you to stand in reverence for the reading of God's perfect word. Acts 10, beginning in verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we we believe that you are speaking to us through your word, and um, Lord, we desire to receive it from you in faith and lord that's what we're doing here lord we pray that you would give us your spirit and and help us to do that lord we pray that you would birth the faith that we need to live in this world through jesus christ lord we pray that you would help us to think your thoughts after you lord we pray that you would help us to um, to, to live in the gospel to live in the freedom of your grace and mercy not according to our works and our performance, Lord. We pray that you would do all of this, even now in these moments. We pray it in Jesus' name, Amen. Please be seated. You now, sometimes you just have to figure out certain things on your own. You can't have somebody else tell you about it. You ever notice that? Uh, sometimes it's just it sticks when you figure it out on your own. Uh, I love barbecue. Especially right now, I love barbecue because this, in case you didn't know it, is that glorious time of the year that we call the fall. And some people grieve and I get really excited because fall means football and barbecue and friends. And there's just a whole lot of things that I associate with this time of the year. And I've long lamented. Ever since I've lived in Oldham County, I, I love living in Oldham County, but I've long lamented that there's just not enough barbecue around here. Uh, and I believe that. And, I, you know, but, but here's the thing I am surrounded by friends. Uh, m- all of them go to this church, all of them are members, uh, many of them are on staff, who are members of a cult. And I call it the barbecue smokers cult. And I'm not kidding. I mean, listen to them talk about it. I get questions from them sometimes like, when are you going to start practicing the dark arts of smoked meats? (laughs) And I'm like, get away from me, you weirdo. I follow Jesus. They talk about it all the time. Sometimes I'm trying to lead staff meeting, and they're over there talking about their brisket this weekend. And so I made up my mind, because they're annoying, a long time ago, that I'm not joining their cult. Well, last month, I hung up my coaching clipboard. I'm no longer coaching baseball. The the boys are all too old for me to help them anymore anyway. And I figured I needed a new hobby. And one cool morning, I was taking Josiah to his baseball practice right over here. And you know what's over there by Oldham County High School? Yeah, the smell of smoked barbecue. And I smelled it. I saw it wafting in the air. And that week, I bought a smoker. (laughs) And I joined the cult. And now they're all looking at me like, told you (laughs) we knew we knew you'd come around sooner or later and I just want to tell all of them now that I could have bought that smoker back when you all did but I want you to hear me when I say I had different reasons okay my own reasons I didn't just do it on your authority I did it because I figured it out on my own so there but have you ever noticed how discovering something on your own has more sticking power than if somebody else were to tell you something. you ever notice that. If somebody can tell you, hey, you need to love your wife, but it's when you get in the trenches and, and get married and start figuring all that out, that's when you learn what it really means to love your wife I think that when we discover something on our own, it does something to our brain. There must be like a dopamine rush or something, that some way that God has designed us. It's more impactful. And I think often what we see in the Bible and what we see in our lives is we see that God is often sort of letting us discover things. Have you ever noticed this? Things that He already knows. It's things that He's already told us. But He knows that there's something in discovery that really brings it home and makes it stick. I mean, Here we have his full revelation, church. Did you know that in that Bible, you have everything that God intends for you to have and everything pertaining to this life of salvation and godliness that he wants you to live in Christ Jesus? It's all here. You lack nothing. And you've been reading it your whole life, some of you. and Some of you have memorized portions of it. You've heard so many sermons. You, you have what he's told you. And yet, I hope that it's your experience that each week you're going, Oh, I never thought about that before. Oh, I've never discovered that before. And it's amazing that we have a God who is slow to anger an abounding and steadfast love, a God who allows us to figure things out, a God who bears with us patiently when it takes us a hundred times to learn the same old lesson. Isn't that amazing, church, that we have a God like that? A God who sometimes backs away and lets us discover it on our own. I think that that is the process that we see happening in the text this morning. Right before our eyes. I want to remind you of the story so far. In Acts 1 8, Jesus, before he ascends to heaven, he tells his disciples, he tells the apostles, he says, Hey, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea. So right here in your neighborhood, and then you're going to go over to the to Shelby County and over to Jefferson County. And 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 also in uh, Samaria, so you're even going to go down to Tennessee and then even to the ends of the earth. And He tells them that right there. So right there in the beginning, we, the reader understand that Jesus intends for the gospel to go global, for the gospel to go worldwide. And then, just to like bring it home, we see Pentecost happen. There are all these people gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and the gospel comes, And all these people, even though they speak different languages, so they're Jews, but they're from the nations, they're there, they're gathered, and they all hear it in their own language, and this amazing thing happens. They're all saved, and the church is born. And yet, by the time we get to Acts chapter 7, the gospel is still in Jerusalem. It hasn't made it out yet. Now, we don't know how much time exactly has passed between Acts 1 and Acts 7. I would argue that it had to be years. It had to be years because there was time for the church to build its habits that we see described for us over and over again. We know that there was enough time for deacons to be raised up in the church who had proven themselves with their character because they're ordained there in Acts chapter 6. And so there's years that have gone by, and yet the gospel is still local. It's still in Jerusalem. So in Acts chapter 7 and 8, Stephen is martyred, the persecution comes, and providentially, listen, this is amazing, providentially God scatters his people from because of the persecution, and so the gospel begins going to the Samaritans almost on accident. It's not even something that they thought of. It wasn't like a strategy, you know, where like the pastors in Jerusalem met and had a staff meeting, said, Hey, we got to take this thing. Remember what Jesus said? That's not what happens. Persecution comes, they scatter, and oh, God providentially is taking the gospel outside of this town now. He's doing it. There's Samaritans converted. And then in Acts chapter 9, This miraculous conversion happens. Saul is walking down the road to Damascus and Jesus strikes him blind and says, You, the persecutor, are about to become my chosen instrument to take my message of salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul saw at this point goes to Jerusalem shortly thereafter, and and the people in Jerusalem don't know what to do with him, the text tells us that they're afraid of him because he's a persecutor. So what's very clear to us, now listen, because we're reading the story, right? We're reading Acts 1, we know the ending of the story, and as we read along, it is very clear to us that God intends for the gospel to go worldwide, but it's not Clear to the apostles yet in the story. They're still figuring things out. So we get to go along on this journey with them and see how God leads His people, how the ascended Jesus accomplishes His purposes on this earth. They're a little slow on this one. and Jesus is dropping clues the whole time in church. We are thankful. For a patient God who waits for us to figure things out. So here's what we're going to do. It's a little different. There's a lot happening in this text. And so we're going to walk through it overview style. All right. The first thing I want you to see is, is where, we, where it starts. In chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, we're introduced to Cornelius. So look with me in verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. So here we are introduced to a Gentile who was a very high ranking military officer who lived in Caesarea, and the text tells us that he would have been known by the Jews as as a God-fearer. He would have been a Gentile who lived like the Jews, who worshipped the God of the Jews. And so somehow he had encountered the God of the Jews and he had responded. He was a devout man who feared God and we see his devotion explained. He was very generous and he also prayed continually to God. And and then we we also learn he led his house to worship the Lord too, there in in verse 2. Well, he gets a vision, verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, that's 3 p.m., it's always confusing, but the ninth hour of the day, remember their day starts at 6 a.m., so the ninth hour of the day is 3 p.m., which is also the time that the Jews would gather at the temple to worship. So there's something happening here. He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius... Joppa. So Cornelius gets his crew and he says, "Go get this one Peter that this angel just told me I needed to find." So that's what happens. So when we get to verses 9 through 16, the the Luke switches scenes for. So so we're no longer there. now it's like a movie. You know you see what's happening here. and Now I'm going to show you what's happening over here. And so where do we where do we discover here? It's what's Peter doing? The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray about noon. he became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air and there came a voice to him rise peter kill and eat But Peter said, "...by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean." And the voice came to him again a second time, "...what God has made clean do not call uncommon." This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And so Peter gets this crazy dream, this crazy vision, this sheet coming down with all these animals, and this message from God that says, "...hey, Peter, it's okay." It's okay, Josh, that y'all smoked that alligator at VBS because there's reptiles in it. And I remember reading this thinking, who wants to kill a reptile and eat it? But apparently we do. So you got to understand, though, in Peter's mind, this is rocking his world. This is like he's been told his whole life, don't you touch that kind of food over there. You will be impure. You must be devoted to God. Your eating habits must be devoted to God. And now he is getting a vision, a dream. God is clearly telling him that something has changed. Now, Peter had already been reintroduced to us at the end of 9. We didn't have time to consider it last week because we focused on Saul's conversion in Acts 9. But at the very end of Acts 9, in verses 32 through 43, Peter's reintroduced to the story. And and Peter there is performing miracles. Uh, He heals a a paralytic and he raises a woman from the dead, which are miracles very similar to who? to Jesus's right the, the point of the text is that Jesus ascended is still working through his apostles on the earth he's working through Peter Peter's a very significant figure we know that all the time in the gospels who's the one talking who is the spokesperson for the rest it's always Peter you I just always imagine I'm kind of pushing him forward like you you go Peter but Peter didn't seem to mind it did he he, he seemed to always want to be The leader. So Peter is the chief leader of the apostles. So if God, listen, here's the point. If God is going to do something in the world, you better think that Peter needs to be involved in it, right? So that's what we see happening in our text today. And so in 10 17 through 23, they meet. And and I'm not going to go through that, but they, they meet. So Peter. And Cornelius's men meet, and they explain to Peter, "Hey, you got to come with us. Uh, Cornelius had a vision; they told told him to get you. You need to come with us." So Peter goes with them, and then in ten twenty three through forty eight, they encounter one another. And let's look at that together. Verse twenty three. The next day, he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. The thing about Cornelius is he had, had a vision about this man needing to come, and here he is, and he knows that he's from God, and, and he had talked to an angel, and so he's a little confused, and Peter corrects him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That was the message. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. So the message is not, listen, it's not just about what Peter's allowed to eat. The message that God is giving Peter is that there's no such thing as boundaries between clean and unclean based on inherent qualities that people have. You cannot look at another person and say, you are not worthy to be here because you do not look like me. You see how that works? Jesus has changed all that. Jesus has completely broken down the barrier walls between the nations. Jesus has opened up this new pathway. And so Peter preaches the gospel to this group. Verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, Anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed. Do you believe in him? Because this this is the truth for you and this is the truth for all eternity, for every person. If you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven because Jesus in that death on the cross was making atonement for the sins, not just of his Jewish people, but for the sins of all the world, for the nations so that anyone who comes to him can be saved, can be forgiven. And Peter preaches this. And, and those who are gathered, including Cornelius, say, We believe. We believe. And they receive the Holy Spirit and they are baptized in forever, brothers, now. Part of God's kingdom. I want to point out two things real quick. The first one I want us to see is that what we have in this text is another surprising conversion. Another surprising conversion. We should be getting used to that. In Acts chapter 6, there are priests getting saved. In Acts chapter 8, there's Samaritans getting saved. And again in Acts chapter 8, there's an Ethiopian eunuch getting saved. What does he have? What is he doing here? And then here in in Acts chapter 9, Saul, the, the greatest enemy to Jesus and the church, is saved. And now Cornelius, the Gentile high-ranking military Roman officer is saved. If that doesn't convince you of, of what God wants us to see, I don't know what will, church. It's this. God can save anybody. And I mean that. I mean that because you've got people in your life that I know you have that you think right now that person is so far away from God's grace, that person is never going to follow Jesus and I'm telling you that you've got to get those notions out of your head because if you believe that you are not going to pray fervently enough if you believe that you're not going to share faithfully enough We cannot believe that there are people in this world who are cut off from the grace of God, even if when we look at them, we see no evidence of searching or seeking at all. Saul was not searching or seeking Jesus. He was searching and seeking Christians to kill and in prison. The issue is not who's seeking. The issue is who is God seeking. That's what we see. But there's this thing, there's this, this message that, that stuck in my head from this passage. And I guess it's the right message because 15, the voice came to him again. This is Peter. A second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. And it says that that's repeated three times. This happened three times. And then the sheet was taken up at once to heaven. This is the message that Peter walks away with in verses 28 and 29. He said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. I think this is really important. I think it's easy when we read the Bible to miss the point of all the language in the Old Testament about what's clean and what's unclean. And and it's easy to walk away with the wrong conclusion. So I think you need to understand something really important. When God was telling Israel that the Gentiles were unclean, it wasn't because there was some inherent inferiority in the Gentiles. This wasn't racism. God wasn't saying, you see all those nasty Gentiles over there? Don't go near them because inherently they're not like you. That's not the reason why God calls certain things clean and certain things unclean. The reason why God does this is because God is teaching His people a lesson about sin and grace. Listen to me, church. The only reason why anyone is considered clean is the grace of God has made that person clean. That's true of you. That's true of me. That's true of any any person in the history of the world. We are all unclean. God by his grace through Jesus makes us clean. He sanctifies us, he washes us, he purifies us, he declares us righteous. He sets us apart. That's the way that we can be clean. This isn't there's nothing inherently unclean or more unclean about Gentiles than Jews. The Jews were just as unclean. The difference was that God had favored the Jews. He had shown His grace to them. Israel, however, had taken that message and they had turned it into a message about their own superiority to other people. And that's a temptation for us too. Because we live in a fallen world. And it's tempting for us as Christians to think we are inherently superior to all of those people out there who don't know the grace of God. And I'm here to tell you that there is nothing more antithetical to gospel thinking than that belief. When we look at people in the world enslaved to sin, we are looking at who we would be if we did not have Christ. That's the difference, and that's the message that God is trying to teach us. The point of verse 15 is that the coming of Jesus has changed the definition of who we consider clean and unclean, because now anyone can be clean if they are found in Jesus, because Jesus died to sanctify sinners. That's what's changed. We've seen a lot of things changing in the book of Acts, haven't we? Do you remember Stephen's sermon about the temple? Where he said, You no longer have to come to this physical temple, this brick and mortar building to encounter God anymore, but in Jesus, you can encounter God anywhere. Because this has changed. Because Jesus has now come and he has now spread the presence of God all over the earth through his spirit. And the same thing's happening here. You can be clean regardless of your background regardless of what you've done regardless of your sin regardless of your nationality or your race regardless of how much money you have in your bank account regardless of of anything and regardless of what you did yesterday if you come to jesus you can be clean you can be rinsed, you can be spotless you can be declared perfectly righteous in christ that is for you and that's the message church that's the good news That's what God is trying to teach Peter right now. That's what we've got to understand. There's another message that I want us to see about this surprising conversion, and that is the theme of righteousness, because here's what I know. If you met Cornelius out at the park, you would go, Man, that's a good dude, you know? If your your teenage children came home and and they said, I'm friends with Cornelius' kids, you would go, all right, good pick, right? Cornelius has it together. In fact, if you looked at Cornelius, you would probably even conclude that Cornelius' life is more put together than some people at church. And yet, Cornelius is not saved. Um, We have a really hard time understanding this, but you've got to hear me. Being a good dude does not mean you are saved. You see, this is where, and let me be real, real clear on this, because I think sometimes we change our theology, especially when it comes to funerals. And we look at someone who just passed away and we go, well, they were a moral person, so yeah, we know where they are. Listen to me. Being a good person does not save you. The righteousness that God demands is always higher than anything any one of us could ever achieve. You cannot be good enough To earn salvation. You cannot be righteous enough for God to let you into heaven in a different path than the one Jesus made for you. Cornelius was not going to go to heaven when he died. Even though Cornelius was giving generously, praying continuously, and leading his house to worship the God of the Jews. Because Cornelius did not have faith. In Jesus Christ. I remember a few years ago. The creator of VeggieTales. Came out with an interview. And repented. He, He basically said. Look. My shows were teaching morality. But my shows were not teaching Christ. And we all like morality. Right? I hope you do. I mean, when I walk into a classroom as a teacher, you better believe I want moral kids in that classroom, right? I want kids from good homes, because they're going to listen. When I get a baseball team to coach, or used to coach, I want kids that are moral. But it doesn't matter. Morality does not save, and we've got to believe that you got to believe that because you're raising children in your own home. You've got to understand, parents, that your kid being a good kid and doing obedient things does not mean that they're going to be in heaven. Every single person in the world must repent and believe the gospel, and that is the only way to be saved. Christ alone is the only way to know God's saving grace. Cornelius ends up doing that. Cornelius puts his faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone there does. We see what happens, and and I want to address this because this always confuses us. So in verses 44 through 48, the Holy Spirit comes upon those who hear the word. And it tells us in verse 45, the believers from among the, the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And, and they knew that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out because, verse 46, they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And that's where we go, oh, do, do I not have the Holy Spirit? I've never spoken in tongues. It's a natural question. In fact, there's a whole tradition all around us of people who build their whole theology on this passage. And, and I need you to understand, remember we said it at the very beginning of our study of Acts, is that not everything you read in the book of Acts is normative for today. Why? And, and I'm going to Just think about this logically with me. Why do they speak in tongues here as a sign that they've received the Holy Spirit? Well, the reason is right there in the text for us. And the believers, verse 45, from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. The reason that God gives them the sign of speaking in tongues to prove they've received the Spirit is because it was probably the only way the Jews were going to believe that they really had been saved. So, what you see happening is a repeat of Pentecost. Why? Because the gospel is going to the nations, and God wants to prove it to his slow to learn people. So, he gives them this sign the same sign they got at Jerusalem. He said, Remember when the Jews believed in Jerusalem? Well, look, the same exact thing's happening now to the nations, they're getting it too. Here's the second thing I want you to see from this text. Converted people need converting. Converted people need converting. Look at Peter. God is moving in this text to convince Peter of something that Peter should have already known. That salvation through Christ is by grace alone. That's something Peter had already heard over and over again. But you know, Peter's whole life was as a Jew. His whole life he had been taught to look down on the Gentiles. His whole life he had been taught to to think of himself as more superior than the people around him. He took pride in being a Jew. He took pride in not being like others. But when Jesus came, he began the process. He began teaching Peter he died for peter he was resurrected for peter remember peter's denial of jesus and jesus's forgiveness of peter he's been on a journey this whole time peter was there at pentecost he preached the sermon peter was there when he heard reports about the samaritans believing the gospel he was there and now he's getting visions visions All of this because God is patiently bringing Peter along so that Peter's imagination will be converted to the reality of God. So that Peter will think like God thinks. Church, listen. You are never finished being converted. Because in this life, you have never reached a point where you've arrived. the moment you first believed was not the finish line it was the starting point you hear me that's really important because we get this wrong we think "Oh, I'm saved I got baptized I prayed the sinners prayer I'm done with that I know if I die I'll go to heaven but you need to understand something when you were saved God was at that moment beginning a process that's going to last for all eternity of conforming you into the image of his son. You are not finished being converted. You still have to keep unlearning old things. We all have to learn new gospel things. We all have to remember things I learned 10 years ago, but somehow I forgot. That happens, doesn't it? I've been thinking about some of that personally. Things I learned that somewhere along the line I lost. And it's the grace of God that reminds you again. I remember being in a church one time where all the deacons during the sermon would, would chit-chat about football out in the lobby while the preacher preached. What's that message that they're believing? We're, we're deacons, right? We've made it. We don't need... We don't need that anymore. Church, may that never be us. When I do premarital counseling with couples, we read a book by Tim Keller, and in that book, Tim Keller has this chapter where he argues that when you marry somebody, you need to recognize that you are not marrying a finished statue. You're marrying a block of marble. (laughs) And that's so important, because I think Often we think we are. We think, oh, this the you know our love blinds us, and we think I'm marrying this this, this person just fell out of heaven and, and their finished product is everything I've ever dreamed. And then like, how long does it take before you your dreams get crushed? Right, like one day. I mean, my wife's poor dreams were crushed like one minute. And I think that that's an important reminder, though. Listen, it's an important reminder for ourselves that I'm not a finished product. I am a block of marble. And it's also, listen, it's really important, too, when it comes to life in the church, because those people who get on your nerves, guess what? They're a block of marble, too. And the same God that's sanctifying you is sanctifying them. How did Peter end up? Well, the last book that we have, the last word from Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and then you don't have to turn there. Peter writes this to the church. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You think Peter learned the lesson? Oh, you better believe it. The apostle that kept failing. The apostle that kept falling down for Jesus to pick back up. The last word we have from him is, God's not slow. He's patient. Church, God's patient. Delight in Him. Let's pray together.